Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Kristen Hayes. Today's episode is the first in a three-part series celebrating RFF's 70th anniversary, which I learned uh, just recently is our platinum anniversary, which is very exciting. And uh, 70 years is, is quite a long time. Just ask Queen Elizabeth, who's been on the throne for 70 years this year. And I think it's fair to say that over that time span, RFF has had a significant impact on the fields of environmental economics and policy. And today, I'm very pleased to talk about RFF's legacy with two guests who know the institution very well, Drs. Carrie Smith and Ray Kopp. So Carrie is Emeritus Professor of Environmental Economics at the W.P. Carey School of Business at Arizona State University. Uh, Before that, he was University Distinguished Professor and the Director of the Center for Environmental and Resource Economic Policy at North Carolina State. He is a member of the National Academy of Sciences and a longtime university fellow at RFF. And furthermore, he was Ray Kopp's graduate school advisor. So Ray Kopp came to RFF in 1977 after finishing his PhD in economics and has held a number of research leadership roles at the institution over the years. Ray's research historically focused on assigning value to environmental and natural resources that do not have market prices. And more recently, he has spent considerable time on federal and international climate policy designs and frameworks. Uh, Last fall, Ray retired, I'm going to put that in air quotes, from his role as RFF's Vice President for Research and Policy Engagement, but he's continued to lead the organization's Comprehensive Climate Strategies Program. So these two gentlemen, they know RFF well, they know each other well, and I am really looking forward to a wonderful trip down RFF memory lane as we explore how the world of environmental economics research has evolved over the past 70 years and how RFF has helped shape that evolution. Stay with us. Hi, Carrie. Hi, Ray. Welcome to Resources Radio. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for including me. Thanks, Kristen. Yeah, it's great. Uh, So we're here to celebrate 70 years of RFF history. Um, But before we talk too much more about RFF, I've I've told our listeners a little bit about you, but I really would like to offer you the opportunity to introduce yourselves more fully as well. So can you tell us a little bit about yourselves and how and also when you ended up at RFF? Uh, Carrie, let me start with you. Thank you, Kristen. Well, over 50 years ago, John Cretilla gave me my first grant, that was in 1970, to pursue some issues associated with his natural environments program. He must have been happy with what I did, because in 1971, he invited me to come to RFF in what would now be called a postdoctoral position. In those days, it was called a two-year a fixed-term appointment. So I worked in his natural environments program with Charles Cicchetti and Anthony Fisher, and it changed my life. Fantastic. Ray, what about, what about you? <laughs> uh, life-changing also. Um, uh, when you have to go back to, uh, to graduate school, the only reason I went on to get a PhD was I had convinced myself I wanted to teach, um, and that's really all I wanted to do, uh, and I needed a PhD to do that. Um, I ended up at Binghamton University. Um, uh, since I had a lot of teaching experience at that point, um, and I was a, um, uh, not going to be a teaching assistant, they allowed me to be a research assistant, and I ended up, uh, after six months, working with Carrie. 
uh, that convinced me that I did not want to be a teacher, uh, that I wanted to be a researcher. Uh, and so that right off the bat was a bit of a life-changing experience right there. Uh, and then when I was in the job market um, in 1977, uh, Kerry had decided to go back to uh, Resources for the Future and, uh, and offered me an opportunity to join him there uh, and working with him on a variety of what was going to become very uh, fascinating and interesting uh, uh, research uh, topics. And, uh, and I did that. Um, and uh, Kerry eventually left and I remained, but still, again, it was Kerry who changed my whole career path from wanting to be a teacher, which I still enjoy doing. Um, but once I became enamored to research, that really was the end of that particular teaching path. Hmm. Okay. Well, you both ended up at RFF in the 70s, it sounds like. Um, right. So let me just reiterate that RFF was founded in 1952. So let's talk about those those first few decades. And I'm sorry to, I don't want to ask you guys to reflect too much on a time before you were even there. But nonetheless, I am really curious, um, what issues did RFF work on in those first few decades? Um, so what was really hot back in the day? Carrie, maybe I can, maybe I can turn that question to you. Okay. Well, RFF was initiated after World War II because there was concern that the U.S. might be running out of raw materials, natural resources, as a result of meeting the needs of the war effort. So the first major effort, and indeed a, a large reason for starting RFF, was to address that question. And the result of that project was a series of books, first assembling the data necessary to address the question, and secondly, a very innovative and influential book by Harold Barnett and Chandler Morse called Scarcity and Growth. It was that book which addressed the question decisively and suggested no, we were not running out of natural resources. But then in an interesting closing chapter said there was a nagging anxiety. And that nagging anxiety has become the focus of RFF that changed environmental economics. It was basically the components of the environment that did not exchange through markets. And they anticipated it all. So from there, at the time I joined RFF in 1971, it had already established a foothold in changing benefit-cost analysis, in developing models associated with integrating economic descriptions of activities that allowed the estimation of residuals and linking them to ecosystems. That was Alan Canesa's work. The benefit-cost analysis was John Cretilla's. And lastly, we can't uh, ignore the major contribution that RFF had in synthesizing, through Myrick Freeman's work, all that we knew about how to measure willingness to pay and willingness to accept the major benefit concepts that were developed in economics and not well understood until Rick and RFF took the lead uh, in developing them. Hmm. 
Fascinating. Uh, certainly willingness to pay is a concept that I hear a lot about even now from Alan Kropnik and others at RFF. So some of these early concepts have obviously continued to uh, percolate through the work that happens today. But Ray, I, I wanted to ask you in particular, because of course I've worked with you on on climate change over the years, but when did when did climate start to become part of the dialogue? So would you consider that RFF was kind of an early adopter in terms of climate research as well? Or is that something where, you know, we were we were in the fold, but not necessarily as pioneering as, as Carrie was just describing? Um, good question. I think um, the, let's talk the greenhouse effect, which is putting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, raising the temperature of the Earth's surface, was well known uh, within RFF um, from a long time. And Kerry can kind of go back even further, but people realize that. As a matter of fact, I think one of the first conferences I ever attended at RFF was around uh, a series of economists who were looking at the ability to measure the Earth's temperature change due to uh, the greenhouse effect. And so that's going back to 1977. So there was cognizance of the uh, of the potential problem. Um, there wasn't any policies out there being talked about in any kind of real meaningful way but there was a recognition of the scientific problem. Um, and so that goes back, you know, quite a ways. But where I think the turning point is for RFF to become really engaged in the policy design, analysis of policy um, instruments, and really doing a lot of analysis began in 1996 with Mike Toman. And Mike Toman developed a, uh, a four or five pages which uh, laid out a climate, economics, and policy program. And what that did is that brought together under one roof in some sense, um, several disparate pieces of research uh, and analysis that were ongoing at uh, at RFF. And that was quickly followed, which I think is really important, um, from a communications perspective, with the establishment of something called WeatherVane. And WeatherVane, I think, was the first digital platform out there long before there were blogs. It looked like a blog. Uh, and it discussed climate policy to a very broad audience. Um, and uh, and that was around for um, for many years, four or five years or so. And uh, uh, we brought people in from the outside to uh, to open discussion formats on that and different platforms. And it was uh, it was quite influential. But I, I trace everything back to Mike, uh, really, in 1996 for pulling everything together. And then, of course, everything really accelerated with the Kyoto Protocol being adopted in Kyoto in 1997. Mm-hmm. And of course, Mike has come back to RFF as well after many years away. I feel like we often have a running joke that it's RFF is a bit like the Hotel California. You know, you can you can come, but you can't always leave. So, but it's great how many people have continued to stay a part of the RFF family. Um, and Carrie, I don't know if there's anything you know. Ray mentioned that you might have even more kind of insight into those early climate discussions. Anything you'd want to add to that? Well, uh, I think not necessarily in the context of climate. But the key thing that came out of Alan Kinesis' program was a recognition that economists got the modeling of production wrong. They focused on the use of capital and labor and not necessarily energy and materials. And the reason that his program was so pathbreaking was to recognize that until you included energy and materials, you didn't recognize that there were things left over after you produced, even services. You had to have energy to produce those services. And so the question was, where did the leftovers go? 
and that began the accounting system that led to recognizing CO2 and the places where all other residuals went and in turn what they did to the atmosphere, the rivers, the lakes, and the air above us. Hmm. Very interesting. All right, I'm going to shift gears somewhat dramatically here, but um, <laughs> poor Ray. I've asked Ray this question before, but um, it was too irresistible to ask when I have two great voices on this podcast. Um, so I want to ask about, instead of the subject matter, I want to talk about the process of research for just a second and ask you both to share a little bit about what the research process looked like pre-internet, and I'm going to go ahead and say even pre-computer or pre-widely available computer, uh, because I find that fascinating. There's, you know, so much of what we do now at RFF is, of course, computer-based, internet-based research, journals are accessible online, and I'm, I, I, I certainly find it fascinating to think about what that process looked like before that, and I'd be very curious to hear some of your insights on that. So, Carrie, let me, let me start with you again, and then I'll turn to Ray. Okay, this one advantage of being old. You experience things and watch them change over a long period of time. In my first econometrics class as an undergraduate, that is the application of statistics to economic problems, we didn't have access to a computer. So that running a statistical model called a regression involved sitting in front of a Marchand electrical calculator for 28 to 36 hours to get a two independent variable model. Later, when I went to Resources for the Future, we didn't have easy access to mainframe computers. This is before Ray came. So what we would do is carry boxes of IBM cards, usually between two and 3,000 of them, down to the GW computer room every other day Wow. And hand them over carefully to the operators, hoping that since we didn't drop them on the trek down, they didn't drop them as they were entering into the machine. And then wait a day or so to get the results back. Wow. So it was a different process that required, in effect, more thinking before you actually looked at data. Now it's so easy to do something, unfortunately, we're all tempted to do things before we think about them. Hmm. Ray, what are you, what are your either reflections on that or your own insights into kind of how it worked uh, in the early decades? Let me just, I think just a characteristic that I think is probably, and I was just thinking about this today when I was working, the process, the research process, and what Carrie's talking about really is kind of people who are doing empirical work. Um, and, uh, and I think that's where the change has been most dramatic. Theorists maybe don't have the same kind of break in, the, uh, in their timeline as people who do empirical work. But the whole process back in the day was much slower. It just took so much more time. Literature reviews took forever. You had to go to libraries and pull down, you know, uh, raw data collection took forever. 
okay you had to collect data out of books okay you had to transcribe it into sheets okay you then had to take those sheets and as Kerry says sit down with an IBM key punch and punch it into cards okay then you had to take the cards to the computer center okay and you had to wait for the data to come back and find out that you mistyped something in the card and you had to do it all over again um, but it was just so much slower um, today the speed at which you can do all that um, is I suppose stressful but it's incredible how much um, uh, quickly things move today. The process then was also very labor intensive. I mean, RFF had, today we have a lot of labor, but you don't see anybody which would be called a secretary anymore. And RFF had lots of them. Okay, because there was no word processors. Okay, there were IBM Selectric typewriters, and the idea of cut and paste was exactly that. You would you would type a, a text that you wanted to overlay on something else and paste it over the old text, and then hand that back to uh, to the principal investigator who would be editing it again. And so this stuff just took forever. Um, and the speed at which you do things today, I think, is um, is dramatically different. Um, and as a result, the productivity that you have is incredible. I do take Kerry's point as a good one, though, because if you had to spend, you know, a week uh, running one particular regression, you'd be pretty careful about the variables you included in that regression, where today it, you do that in 30 seconds. And so if you don't like it, you run another one. Um, but that said, the poll process is much quicker today. Um, and to me, it's a little more satisfying than it was back in the day. Okay. Yeah, I guess I do want to ask, is there anything that you... Is there anything that you miss? You know, Ray, you, you snuck the word stressful in there. It all sounds much more efficient and, you know, obviously much speedier. But I do wonder, is there anything that you miss about that that sort of earlier research process? Yeah, the fact that you didn't have um, email. Um, oh, okay. All there, right. was, there was no email. If somebody <laughs> okay. wanted to get in contact with you, they sent you a letter. Okay. Or they called you on the phone. Okay. You know, uh, and so as a result, your day could move along without being interrupted and you didn't have the fear that you were missing something. Okay. You know, uh, you, you know, if you didn't get a letter, you didn't get a letter. Okay. And that's all there was to it. But that I think is something that is long gone. And I do think many of us miss the ability to sit down and think uninterruptedly for a period of time. Uh, and that's where, where creation really takes place in those particular hours. Right now, um, if you're not watching, you know, your, your, you know, the, the chat on your teams or you're listening to your email or if you're on Slack or something else, I think that's a little bit overwhelming. And it does add to, uh, to the pressure, I think, that people feel to be constantly connected. And that did not exist 40 years ago. Hmm, interesting. Carrie, what about you? Anything you miss? Well, I think Ray hit the nail on the head. That time gave you the opportunity to think both about the problems you were working on and what you might miss. The other thing that I think is important and connects me back to Ray, when I was uh, had left RFF after the first uh, two-year stint, I went to Binghamton University, which is where Ray and I met. And I had the good fortune to acquire a data set that Nobel laureate Dan McFadden had put together after years of work with students on electric power plants. And were it not for Ray, everything would have been chaos. I mean, he had the organizational skill, the management skill, 
the clear knowledge of how structures should be organized, I, I was hopeless at those things. And <laughs> so it was really important to me to keep him employed continuously with me and by my side, not only because of those skills, but because of his ideas. Yeah. No, Ray is a probably the most organized person I know. And I will also note that Ray has told me uh, several times over the years that um, one of the best management strategies that he knows of is to hire people to work with you who have complementary skills. So it sounds like maybe you learned that from you, Carrie. You've paid it forward. Okay, so again, I'm going to shift gears a little bit here, but one of the things that we talk about a lot at RFF these days, I'm going to make it sound like a buzzword, but it's much more than that, actually. But we talk about the way in which we're having impact, right? So not just you know, in the kind of the classic sense research that sits on a shelf or anything like that, we want to have impactful research. Um, so I want to dive a little bit into the concept of, of impact and maybe how that's looked over the decades that RFF has been in existence. So Carrie, I'm, I'm going to start with you again. So in what areas do you see RFF's research as having had the most impact over the years? And, and why? And you referenced a few of these at the beginning, but I want to give you a chance to sort of speak to that question uh, more fully. Sure. Thank you, Kristen. What the Environmental Protection Agency does now in the evaluation of new rules or major changes to rules called benefit-cost analysis I referred to earlier would not have taken place without Resources for the Future. Resources for the Future codified it, showed how it could be used, and developed all of the key elements. I mentioned the work that Myrick Freeman did. Another that I didn't mention and is equally important, when economists and epidemiologists were trying to understand the role of local conventional air pollutants, there was not extensive use of statistics. The analysis relied on laboratory experiments. Lester Lave and Eugene Seskin wrote a very influential book and a series of papers. Eugene was at RFF. Lester was at Carnegie Mellon called Air Pollution and Human Health. If you look at the most influential work on criteria air pollutants, it traces its roots in the dose-response relationships to the pioneering work of Lave and Seskin. In addition, I'll mention three other things. The first of these, again, traces to John Cretilla. We distinguish two sources of value. We derive value from visiting recreation sites, from using the environment in particular ways. And John highlighted the notion that perhaps there are some people and some dimensions of environment that we don't or would not use, but still feel would be important. In my own case, you would never catch me in a wilderness area ever, but I want them available because my grandsons love that activity, okay? Uh, that was called non-use value. Second, 
in the three that I'm going to talk about was the treatment of uncertainty. Economists had talked about it in some ways, but focused exclusively on insurance. Tony Fisher and Ken Arrow talked about option values and quasi-option values, namely the notion that it is important to protect things because we're not sure what will happen, particularly if those changes are irreversible. And lastly, the third element is the element that I mentioned already, which is paramount in the literature today, but not recognized for a long time by economists. And that's Alan Canace's argument that we had to integrate economic models within a broader setting that recognized the key role of the environment. And the two classes of models had to learn to work together, taking account of the feedbacks between the two. So those are the three or four areas where I would say RFF changed the landscape both for research and for policy analysis in ways that no other institution has. Hmm. Wow, that's fantastic. Ray, let me let me turn to you to build on that, to, if you want to reflect on any of the ones that Carrie just shared, or of course, I'd love your reflections on what you've seen as most impactful over the years too. Yeah, right. Thanks, Kristen. Um, no, Carrie has, you know, almost as the outside observer looking at the products of, of RFF, you would pick out, you know, those as, as being quite impactful. But on the inside, there's, I looked at this from a different direct, first of all, you know, over the seven decades of RFF history, I think we've been impactful, you know, every single year. But, you know, I'm on the inside looking out. And from the inside looking out, I think what, what I focus on is, why is RFF impactful? Okay, what what is it about the organization? Okay, that gives rise to this impact year after year after year, uh, and it goes to the kind of the unique abilities of the organization to provide value to decision makers. Um, I mean, that's what our mission is all about. But I think that's what the, at the core it's these abilities. And so, what are the, so what what are the abilities or the capacities of the organization that do that? One, a just a deep understanding and expertise in envir energy, environment, and natural resource subject areas. Okay, I mean, it's just you know, there's within the staff. I mean, um, uh, like I say, just a, just a, a deep understanding of both the economics associated with those policies and the policies themselves. The second has got to be the capacity to conduct just detailed empirical investigations of policy questions. Okay, I mean, um, uh, to really unravel very complicated policies uh, and, and using the economics as a paradigm here, evaluate the effectiveness of those particular policies. Um, perhaps though, the, one of the most important aspects, and maybe it is the most important, is RFF has the capacity to create new knowledge. Uh, we can develop new understandings of policy problems um, and we can develop entirely new policy solutions. And Kerry had just pointed to many of those that have been developed in the past and are continued to be developed. Um, there's very few organizations that have all those components. There's deep understanding, this ability to empirically investigate problems, and then the ability to create new knowledge and new policy solutions when there's nothing on the shelf that's going to fit. Um, and uh, and you know, I hope that RFF continues in that, uh, that vein going forward. But when I look at our impact, I attribute it to those particular characteristics of the organization. Mm -hmm. I, I have to say, I've worked at RFF for a number of years myself, but I've not been affiliated with the organization um, as long as either of you. And it's 
I, I find it very heartwarming, maybe is the word I'm looking for, how much pride I hear in both of your voices about um, just about the, the way that RFF has really helped shape the narrative. And, and I think I think that does kind of seep through the organization, this sense of legacy and the sense of sort of standing on the shoulders of giants, if you will, and, and really continuing that research over the years is really motivating. So, um, so thank you for sharing your reflections on that. Uh, Carrie, I'm going to ask you, we're, we're nearing the end of our time here, but I, I want to ask you one more question. And it's actually about Ray. <laughs> so you've known Ray uh, a very long time. And RFF, of course, has benefited from Ray's insights and his energy and his organizational skills um, for over 40 years now. And so I think this is probably going to embarrass him a lot. I wanted to ask you, Carrie, if you could say just a few words about how you see Ray's legacy. Thank you, Kristen. I'm really pleased to have that opportunity. There are multiple parts of his legacy. I want to divide it into two components. The first is his research. I saw from the earliest work he did as a graduate student completing his dissertation that he transformed the way economists think of the connections between what we might call engineering or technical definitions of efficiency and economic definitions of efficiency. Now, there were a number of theorists who'd worked on this, and several of them decided they wanted to work with Ray after they read his thesis. So he made a dramatic change in that. Later at RFF, he was really the first to recognize that the social costs of environmental regulations have two components, a direct component and an indirect component. The indirect arises through the price system. The direct arises through the costs that firms incur to meet environmental rules. He demonstrated how these social costs could be measured and actually implemented with another person at RFF, Michael Hazilla, who's no longer with us, exactly how these could be integrated in a general equilibrium model. And if we look at EPA's current and most recent report on social costs and their SAGE model, it's a direct offshoot of the Hazilla COP work from 1990. So the impact is enormous. On a personal side, as you've noticed from this conversation, Ray always listens before he speaks. So when he says something, it always reflects deep insights and is something that we all want to listen to. But perhaps what's most important of all in his legacy is that he leads but he leads without being first. He doesn't have to be first. I'm sure this essential quality of a great mentor is a part of his legacy at RFF. Well, thank you, Carrie. I just really wanted to have a few minutes to sort of celebrate Ray's tenure with the organization. And um, it's no secret to Ray that I'm a, a huge Ray Cop fan. And um, so am I. Good. Okay. Well, maybe we'll have another podcast where we just talk about more about the joys of Raycop. But, but yeah, this was um, 
this podcast was always designed to be certainly about RFF's legacy, but also really a celebration of, of Ray and the service that he gave to the organization for many years. So, so thank you for helping me with that piece. Um, sorry if you're embarrassed over there, Ray. <laughs> Hope you're okay. I'll survive. All right. Well, um, yes, we have come to the end of our time chatting today. Uh, I do want to close with with Top of the Stack, which I think you probably are are both familiar with. So, yeah, let me quickly ask you both what you'd want to recommend to our listening audience, uh, either literally or figuratively, what's on the top of your stack. Carrie, let me start with you, and then I'll turn to Ray. Well, I would recommend uh, John List's new book called The Voltage Effect as key reading, both from the lessons that he's identified in the market sector and the opportunities for the rest of us to find those lessons in the non-market sector. The basic idea is, when do great ideas scale? And RFF has learned that, as Ray suggested, in the way in which they work to identify problems and then communicate ways they can be addressed. So that's one thing I would suggest it's worth taking a look at. The second, in the top of the stack, is what do we do to make sense of big data in the 21st century? How can we be more sensible in thinking before we use it and using it effectively. There's a recent NBER conference volume put out by a classic series in income and wealth that's really worth looking at. And I think a companion effort at RFF on how to learn from non-market data would be especially interesting. Hmm. Okay. Well, I want to give a particular uh, shout out. I, I think coming up, we're actually going to have a, a podcast episode on that John List book. So our listeners can both read the book and then hopefully hear a little bit about it direct from the author. But those are great recommendations. Ray, what about you? What's on the top of your stack? Yeah, well, I, I endorse Carrie's uh, John List book here. Um, and we should note John List is an RFF University fellow. Um, sure, we get that plug in. I would, I, I'm almost a little... Um, uh, worried about recommending this book because to me it is quite thought-provoking and um, discomforting. And that's Yuval Harari's Sapiens. Um, extremely engaging history of the species, okay, I say, but also a bit disturbing. Um, and so we've become aware, you know, that sapiens are self-aware decision makers separating us from the rest of the natural world. Um, they have the ability to make thoroughly bad decisions, okay, um, and destroy the species, um, again, separating them from the rest of the natural world. Um, and you're left with a feeling that there's nothing about this particular species biology to prevent bad decisions. Um, and we are in a pretty dubious part of the world now. I mean, climate change uh, is one where you can make a lot of bad decisions, but uh, as we are experiencing uh, in Ukraine, there's lots of bad decisions that sapiens can make. Um, so it is a bit of a sobering book, um, but uh, I, I, I would recommend it. Um, it's, he's an excellent writer. Uh, it reads exceptionally well, even if you only care about the uh, the history that he provides. It's, uh, it's, it's very entertaining, but it is... Um, uh, yeah, it, it's worrisome. Uh, it leaves it leaves you a little a little worried about the species going forward. Hmm. 
right. I could also list a lot of cookbooks, but um, uh, that's just I, what I was going to say, Ray. I was say I really thought you were going to recommend a cookbook there at the end. Food Lab, an engineer's cookbook, uh, is fabulous. Yeah. Brilliant. All right. Yes. Good. Well, let's end on that uh, both sobering note and happy note there. So, so thank you both again. This has been a lot of fun. I really always enjoy talking to both of you and also hearing more about uh, the great institution that is RFF. So thank you so much and talk to you again soon. Thank you, Kristen. Thank you, Kristen, very much for including me. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.